0: Autism has quadrupled. Why? The number of children diagnosed with autistic spectrum disorders has escalated from one in 250 to one in 58 last year in the US. Although often described as genetic, obviously the genes haven't changed. So what's going on in the environment that's driving this rapid breakdown in neurodevelopment? Paul Shattuck, OBE, has spent his life researching autism and is the chair of ESPA, education and services for people with autism and former director of the Autism Research Unit at the University of Sunderlands. There he showed that many autistic children have caseomorphins and gliadorphins, these are opioids created from wheat and milk when the gut is leaky in their urine. But this is but one of many factors linked to increasing risk for ASD and other neurodevelopmental problems. We're going to have a frank discussion about everything from vitamins to vaccines, essential fats to environmental toxins, learning from a man who's dedicated decades to finding out what's going on and how to help children and their families. Paul, welcome to my podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: How many decades have you been focused on autism and why? What got you involved in the first place?
1: Well, I'm no saint. And I'm doing this for my son. My son was diagnosed on the 31st of May, 1975, when he was four and a half. That's young for those days. And then um, uh, 10 days later, we had the, general, uh, the annual general meeting of the Tyneside Society for Autistic Children, which I found out about from the newspaper. And I went there, went to the meeting, And I don't quite know why, but I've got voted to be the secretary of this society. And uh, they had a plan to get uh, to start a school for people with autism. So there's no saintliness on my heart. My main instigation was um, my own son. He, there was no school for him. So we had to try and find help get one started. And you're also
0: Chair of, of ESPA, Education and Services for People with Autism. When did you start um, um, Right? Yeah. Well, ESPA, the school, um, what does it do?
1: Yeah, the school started in uh, 1982 or something like that. We, we spent a lot of time raising money. And I have to say that Sunderland is a wonderful place to live if you're trying to raise money. We don't have rich people to give us lots of money, but the people are extremely generous. The Sunderland Echo, our local newspaper, and the Newcastle equivalent, were very helpful at raising money. So were the local television stations, as we raised it the hard way by doing various stunts and dances and uh, things like that. And it came in. Mostly, it was there. We did get some help from the National Autistic Society at the time, Um, and it took us, but we had to do the repairs ourselves, and we had to have a um, uh, a building. we had to have all the staff in position and being paid before they'd even consider sending children to us. But uh, it took off. And then, as our children got older, uh, we realized that they were going to let, when they were 16, seventeen, we hadn't got anything for them. A children's school isn't the thing. So we decided to set up a separate organization to have linked but separate, called CAP, Communities for Autistic People, um, which, the, which was the idea we had, we, we started with. But we'd only got one community for autistic people when it became politically incorrect to have autistic people. So we had to have people with autism. So we changed our name from CAP to ESPA, which actually stood for European Services for People with Autism. And at the time we thought by putting the European in, we'd get grants from Europe and other places to help us with this thing. And we did to some extent, but then that became politically incorrect as well for other reasons, as we've changed our name to Education and Services for People with Autism. The two outfits, um, the, the ESPA and the school, separated totally, and, but they're still both going strong. The uh, um was called the Tyneside Society for Autistic Children, but now it's called Northeast Autism Society. They run a large school system, various schools in the area, and uh they employ about a thousand people. And we in Esper, we employ about 600 people. We've got 32 homes around the northeast of England, and uh I'm not sure we could have done it in the same way as we've done it in Sunderland, anywhere else in the country. Very proud of that.
0: Well, it's, it's good to hear. So if someone has a family member um, with autism, they can contact Esper and get some support?
1: Yes, that that's what we started with doing. Um, we were giving support long before we had a school. and uh, So we had a clientele waiting for us when we did eventually open.
0: And what's the web link just while we're talking about that
1: what's the what sorry uh, the website oh um well we That's we fine. don't do as much of that as we did before but so i suggest just send i'll give you my email address it's just paul shattuck as one word at aol.com i'm quite Thank happy so so, uh, yeah. paul shattuck as one word no block capitals no dot in the middle, just Paul Shattuck at aol.com. Or people do send messages to the ESPA research unit that we have. One of the things we did later on, when we got thrown out of the university, we decided to move in. The society was good enough to take us under its wing. So we set up all ESPA research. We do the research as a a wholly owned subsidiary of ESPA, uh, and we don't charge, that doesn't cost us the ESPA any money because we do commercial work on foods and drinks and things like that to rake enough money to just about cover the cost of the experiments we do it's self-financing.
0: Well, that's a hell of an achievement. Now, autism turned into autistic spectrum disorders now seems to be part of a broader term, neurodivergence. What are we actually talking about?
1: Um, I'm not talking about it, actually. I don't know, but uh, it sort of varies a bit. But I think we all understand that there are people who share certain similarities with people with autism. And of course, they need support, can need support as well. There is a large overlap with groups um, like this, and, but uh, sometimes there was friction between the groups as well. But, um, but
0: what what um, what are the sort of classic signs uh, of somebody who sort of fits into this, you know, categorization? for people who don't know uh, what autism is or autistic autistic spectrum disorder, as it's now called. You know, why did it move into a spectrum? Um, what are the, you know, what's it like in, in real life? What are we talking about?
1: Well, I think we're talking about a lot of the people that uh, in our communities are really quite intelligent. And they, they're more intelligent than we are. And in certain cases, they run rings around us uh, with knowing what's going on and so on. But they do don't have all the same problems that people with autism have um they can survive in society with help with with support when it's necessary a lot of them have anxiety issues but they're not they're not necessarily autistic anxiety but they're close enough to overlap in certain similar situations um i'm just being very cautious here because there was a time when people used if i was speaking somewhere I'd get people protesting outside and we have been known once we did a conference about a certain aspect, beginning with the letter V, and uh, we had to not say where the place was going to be because we knew we'd be invaded by people who felt this was inappropriate. Um, And there was friction between us, but a couple of years ago, I went to America for a conference for the World Autism Organization, and I was terrified that we were going to get dozens of Americans being awkward and and nagging with us. But they were brilliant. We were able to talk all these things through and share it through, and we all ended up on the same side. Uh, It can be done, but I think there was a degree of friction at one time, which I hope is going now.
0: Well, we, we'll talk about everything because the whole basis of having a discussion on the science and indeed trying to help people uh, yes. it can't be, you know, you can't be sort of limited in what you say. But just before we get into that, um, over all these years since the 80s, have you seen the number of children with autism increase? And if so, is this just better diagnosis?
1: Yes to the first part, no to the second. Um, I'm sure you've seen the the figures that came out about a month ago from the CDC in America about the numbers of people uh, coming through the system and the number of eight-year-olds, they're recording now as one in 36 children of eight years of age is now on the autistic spectrum. Uh, When we started, when Jamie was diagnosed, my son, um, the figure was one in One in 2,500, which wasn't a lot, so it was a rare disorder. Um, But now when it's one in 36, that equates to 70 people. So the number has gone up from um, every one person who was diagnosed with autism back then. There are 70 now, and it's going up constantly. Um, I do get a little bit annoyed with the statistics the CDC puts out because they made other changes this year. They changed the records for, for other years, so they looked like a nice, smooth curve going up and up. Well, isn't that? It, it was jagged. Things happened, and, which may have added to the environmental factors which were involved. Um, the idea that is just uh, genetic... To start with, they had to prove that it was genetic at all, and they did that by looking at um, twins, where there were uh, identical twins. If one was um, autistic, the other one was ninety nine percent certain to be autistic. I'm making these numbers up, but that sort of thing. But now it's there's other things that, and they had the fraternal twins who are not identical. No link whatsoever. One being autistic meant nothing to the other. Now it's changed. Now they're saying 75%, or 2011 they said, 75% of the the, the twins who were um, homozygous were uh, the same, and 35%, I think it was, of the fraternal twins are the same things are changing yeah so
0: it's, it's definitely um, yes I have no definitely doubt moving. And I think people don't understand that this is a this is a sharper rise than we're seeing in obesity diabetes cancer dementia you know anything this is an exponential increase
1: I agree I and agree we just with that you. heard
0: that shocking figure of like one in six over, you know, eight year olds. I mean, one in 36, it's, yeah. it's extraordinary. Now, I've always thought of you as both a scientist and a humanitarian whose only issue is how to help those with autism. So let's kind of start at the beginning um, because it's been quite a journey and I don't want to not discuss anything because it's politically sensitive, but what have you found that may contribute both to a child developing autism in the first place uh, and also, you know, what, what, what makes a difference?
1: Yeah. Well, when, when Jamie was diagnosed, we had a diagnosis, he's autistic and we say, well, what happens now? Well, there was nothing. All there was, was a, a sort of behavioral, autism was a behavioral disorder. And so we learned operant conditioning as it's called to change the behavior. Now we know that was completely wrong, but then gradually ideas came up that it might be this, it might be that, and people were trying things out on guesswork of what would happen. Uh, I can remember a trial uh, on um, various drugs which didn't seem to have much relevance, but theoretically they they may do, but they didn't. They weren't helpful at all. And then the first things that came out were. Other things that came out were suggested by parents. And that was where gluten and casein came in. Um, they were some sort of the first things to come out. And I, I didn't believe a word of it. And neither did Carl Reichelt, the Norwegian hero who sort of took this under his belt. And he persuaded us to have, it, to have a go as well. And it was true. People were being helped by these things. It wasn't just because we wanted to see improvements. They were there. And then you look back and people use, you were using for schizophrenia as well and other disorders like that. Um, that was where we started, thinking, yes, there are things that we can do with here. And we looked at everything we could think of and um, what we did know and what we didn't know. And I do a little talk. I've just developed a talk about what it was like at the beginning. And one of the first things that we noticed with our son When he was born, he looked ever so healthy compared to the other children in the ward. They were all white, and he was a lovely golden-yellow colour. And I thought, wonder why he's a different colour to all the others. And then it turned out it was jaundice. I should have known that, but I didn't know it. And um, now we look back and we realise that's a red flag in a way. That's one of the things which, you, if you could pick up early enough, you see it coming through. It indicates a lack of sulfation in the system, mm-hmm. and other things that that we see in children um, are signs as well. Um, you can pick them up, and if if we were trained properly, and if we still had the nurses who came out and visited young children, they could tick them off, and well, I think we'd be able to pick people up much earlier than we do. Not not testing all of them, but um, uh, getting an idea. And so you can set set things going early. Everybody knows the only thing that we agree about in autism, all of us, is that the early starting of any sort of treatment is is ideal. But when you got to wait to eight, which is the, the average age of diagnosis now, if you have to wait till you're eight before you're even diagnosed, 've lost it we've lost the chances we've really got to go looking back at these um early signs as well so let's let's unpack
0: some of those so you say sulfation. I'm thinking yellow and uh sulfation has got something to do with B vitamins as well That's so it. so
1: what would you what would you test
0: um to find out if a child has a sulfation problem and then what would you do about it
1: well the, the, the first thing to do is um uh, do the test the the um the problem now is that i don't know whether you've heard about this but even in sunderland there are 1300 children waiting to be diagnosed mm-hmm. in one city in the uk as a whole there are um 140 000 children mainly waiting to be diagnosed it it's it's a big process now, but because well, so. Talking
0: many... about diagnosed with autism. Sorry. Are you talking about diagnosed with autism or diagnosed with a sulfation problem?
1: Uh, now this is just this is di- the 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 numbers waiting to be diagnosed by the CAMS teams. A hundred and forty thousand, hundred. No, well, whatever. What I just said. now one thousand. Yeah. Uh, no, it's. it's uh,
0: 140,000 in the UK,
1: and, and that is with autism. Waiting, waiting to be done. They think they've got it, and, they, and they're and they waiting to be investigated. Now, God help them. Um,
0: but, it, but is homo, is homocysteine a good sort of indicator it of is,
1: a there are, uh, I attended a lecture, funnily enough, uh, two weeks ago in Abu Dhabi, and there were three teams trying to do a diagnostic test to, to identify autism at this early age. Um, they involved, people spent a long time looking for the autism gene. They didn't find it. because It doesn't exist. There's lots of genes that might be involved in slight extent. And the same applies with the biochemical abnormalities as well. There's a lot. There isn't just one thing. We spent time looking for a marker compound, but there's a lot of them. And, um, they can be done, but none of them uh, are perfect in every way. And they, they haven't even... They've got some which they could pick out, say, 82% of the autistic ones by doing this series of tests, but it's not all of them. But work is going on so that you could apply these tests and then perhaps um, a lot of them would, wouldn't be in that group and they do something else with. But it does mean that they can... Con- concentrate on those people with the positive readings
0: and and what sort of tests you know let's say money is no object at this point and there's a laboratory that's available you mentioned sulfation for example yeah um, what sort of tests should we be doing is homocysteine uh useful it, for
1: picking up a sulfation it, problem it is we uh, well, there's a funny story for you well i don't don't think it's funny but it's amusing i am um, I went to, um, we found a marker compound which was present in the majority of the urine samples of people with autism. It was called um, <laughs> IAG, Indole Acrylic, acry- acry- um, oh, I can't remember now. I-A-G. I-A-G, IAG, IAG. Yes, called it IAG. It was that, which is an ab- ab- unusual metabolite of the amino acid tryptophan, which is hugely important in this whole thing, this was there, and we found it in about seventy-five percent of people with autism. It was the biggest in this chart that we, biggest peak in this chart we did, and we did diagnosis unknown in as in a test for a paper, and we we did okay with it, not perfect, but okay. But I was in this day, I was in uh, Sicily. And I was doing a talk and I'd got 13 of these samples and I'd done the tests on them. And I normally say, who's in this one? And then we discuss the person. But this particular day, I decided to show off even more than usual. And I said, I'm going to prophesy whether this per- what this person is like. And, and I got these 13. And 12 of them, I got wrong. Totally <laughs> wrong. It was very embarrassing. I only got one right. And then they clapped afterwards as well, which was very embarrassing. And then I went outside of a building in Taomina and I looked up and there is Mount Etna standing there, spewing out mercury, spewing out other things. And we realized why it was that when we were doing our little test, um, it worked in northern Italy, but not in southern Italy. That's where the volcanoes are. I do think there's a lot of other external things there's there's different routes to get there. It doesn't have to be this route, it could be this route, where it ends up with certain common commonalities at the end of the line. And we're fiddling about with those. We did, as I say, we did a lot of work with tryptophan and its metabolites, and right. by two thousand and ten, we thought we know it all, and we we knew there's things going on there. But now we're going to look again because I see there's a lot more work being done on tryptophan metabolites, and I think we're going to we're going to, we're going to have a go at that. We can do what we like because we're an independent laboratory, and we can follow the science wherever it takes us. This is what we're trying to do. You, we would not get grants for doing this. Um, it's probably doubtful we'd even get ethical approval for doing it. But uh, we will do what we can here. And if we have to go abroad, we would do so for it. And,
0: on, and on the tryptophan front, does that mean that something like 5-hydroxy-tryptophan or even tryptophan, the amino
1: acid itself, could be helpful or harmful? Well, that's interesting because one of the first experiments, an American, um, Ritvo, Dr. Ritvo, proposed a test with a drug which made you produce more um serotonin at the end of that little chain um but it, 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 it he had a trial of one person and one is identical twin was the, the control and another control so you couldn't prove anything from it he just wanted to report it i think so that people would look at it but tryptophan the the the, the, the route that takes tryptophan down to serotonin and melatonin and other things down there that only uses about 10 percent of the tryptophan the rest of it is in pathways which we have ignored a uh, if you want to kill cells um you put nic- um uh, oh gosh what's this stuff called sorry my mind's going again um another amino acid which is formed by from tryptophan And that's how you kill cells and it causes, it causes epilepsy and Mm. another substance there protects you from epilepsy and vitamin nicotinamide is made in that pathway. 80% of the tryptophan goes along that route, Mm. not along the route that we're talking. And our IAG compound is along a third route, which doesn't seem to have any function whatsoever except to get rid of excess tryptophan. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know we want to look at this more clearly and it might well be involved in covid as well there's similar sorts of things well, um, ni-
0: niacin or nicotinic acid vitamin b3 i mean that's um that's got a very long history in relation to uh you know psychiatric disorders i mean of exactly. course pellagra you know so
1: that, if that route is impaired as we believe it is and we have found a compound which would block that compound, something that's very big in the environment nowadays, Organophosphate pesticides will block that route down through kineuranine to the to the b three. we We knew this, but we weren't in a position to be able to study it better, and we'd like to do so.
0: Mm, organophosphates, they come up all over the place. Now, just so we don't lose all the threads, uh, you know, some years ago, you have the Autism Research Unit at the University of Sunderland. I remember coming across your work on milk and wheat or gluten and casein, and you were finding some things in the urine of children with autism that shouldn't be there. For those who are not aware of uh, what this is about, could you sort of unpack that for us a bit?
1: Yeah. Well, gluten and casein are proteins, which are long chains of amino acids. And um, when you digest these things, you break them down to shorter things called peptides, which are short things. And some of these peptides do have shown to have uh, the same sort of activity as opium, as morphine. Um, they are they are probably what morphine effects that is in the body. Morphine is the, is the toxin, which comes in and does these things in the body. Um, but we make them ourselves. Now, the interesting thing, which I, I will disclose to you now is only in two of the 16,000 samples that we studied, did we actually find opioid peptides. One was a policeman from Australia and the other, I can't remember who it was, but the other 15,998, we didn't find, we found broken bits. These peptides have been metabolized in the blood uh, or wherever it takes place and um, had been broken into these short bits. But this is initially we, we could put them together and say, yeah, that's that's an opioid peptide, but when you're dealing with short chains like that, they could have come from anywhere, really. Um, yeah, so we've stopped saying this is these little bits all joined together um, make the thing, and that that proves it does have it can happen. It may have come from those, but it may not have done. It may have come from different sources of food. So we're much more cautious about what we say it now, except for the Australian policeman and another young lady who lives up in northumberland whose name i don't know so
0: you're talking about you were measuring these um KCO morphines and yeah, yes and morphines or whatever they're called yeah, yeah. so you are finding them
1: in. we find small yeah. amounts of them yeah but um in but we find the iag is the co- dominating substance there now the the point about it, IAG, is that it has no known to use. But if you're making tryptophan, you're converting it into IAG and on to other waste products. Mm-hmm. IAG, there's, a, there's an indole acrylic um, acid or something. Immediately before that, and that, I was once doing a lecture, and I pointed up, and this Frenchman jumped up and said, that's dangerous, that's terrible stuff. Um, it makes leak all org uh, enzyme um, not enzyme membranes leaky mm-hmm. and that was what it did it was doing that uh, that was there that is there because it cannot get that compound without going through this route to get to it but it's a highly reactive dangerous molecule now that may have something to do with it it may be that this, these these foods um and will they, they leak through the blood-brain barrier and through the guts, make them leaky. That may be part of the leakiness. We don't know. There's lots of possibilities there, but uh, we we need to look at these again.
0: Yeah, we're going to get a, an upgrade. A, 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 the Food for the Brain Foundation are doing a masterclass on new frontiers and autism on June 21st, and we have Professor Alessio Fasano and he's yes. very very much in that area of the gut and yes, he and, is. And the of... leak and the leakiness of it. So I think kind of what you're saying, and just going back to the work on gluten and casein, um, I think what you're saying is that a lot of autistic children do do better on a gluten-free and casein-free diet, yeah. which may be to yeah. do with the yeah, but we, we don't know exactly.
1: No, we we did um uh, the, the ScanBrit trial on uh, gluten and casein free diets. It was a good trial, and it came up positive in certain respects. Um, some people didn't weren't helped by it at all. It, uh, and but we reckon that it, it helps more people than anybody else. Anything else does that we found. It um, it's probably we say to people we. I'm a pharmacist, I'm not a doctor, I do not give instructions um, on what to do, but we do say to people um, about half the people with autism are helped by it. The other 50% is a waste of time. It either makes such little change, it's not worth it. So they're not all the same. People with autism are different, but there is a group which is helped uh, in these ways. Um, But again, this sort of work uh, doesn't collect money from anywhere because nobody can exploit it for, mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, in, in any way, except just making gluten or casein free bread. There was a trial you may remember um, uh, 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 about case or case um, milk a and B. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't, Find a big difference between them. Mm-hmm. In fact, we found that. Um, <clears throat> let me think. I've forgotten which is which now. <laughs> uh, anyway, the the cow the, well We the trouble was getting ethical approval. This is my opinion that we could not get ethical approval to try it on seriously autistic young children. Which, mm-hmm. if it was going to work, it would have been the, the best one. But we couldn't do that because the ethical committees said that we hadn't got ethical approval from the subjects. If you use little autistic children, they could not give approval. So that sort of work wouldn't be done.
0: Mm -hmm. And by the way, is it... uh, If a child's going to respond, do they respond to both gluten and casein free or or are there some that seem to be very sensitive to gluten and others very sensitive
1: very good point what we did um we devised a protocol start with this then that then that then that then that and the first thing we always said was just take milk out of diet and the reason we said that was if it was going to work You knew in a week that it was working. Um, And so usually in two or three days, you can say, he's different, He's different uh, in a short period of time. So milk was always our first. We'd say, try it for three weeks and see what happens. And if it works, keep doing it. If it doesn't work, stop doing it. And quite a lot of people realize when they stop work and put milk back in, the kid went worse again. So we have that bit in as the first bit. And then, um, and particularly we noted that was more likely to be the milk factor if if in the young, in the, um, because their children drink milk at a much younger age than they eat wheat. Um, and then the old ones who came on autistic a little bit later, but often the ones who responded to gluten so we'd say do milk first and then do the gluten add the gluten to it and see if you get any additional help from that and then we would we'd move on to the other things the vitamins that you were talking about we would do we would try the sulfation which you you can't eat sulfate um uh, any sort of sulfate, because uh, magnesium sulfate, for instance, is a laxative, quite a good one too. So, But we put it in the bathwater, and it was shown, rotary wearing, that it would be absorbed into the skin. And some salts, is it? Yeah, yeah, and it's just give it a try. We say to people, give it a try and see what happens. If it helps, do it. If it doesn't help, stop doing it. And we had a list of about 20 things you can try. And in this sequence, which we thought was the most appropriate one. And that was as far as we dared go into advocating any particular product or into uh, uh, being a pharmacist in a school of pharmacy. I was cautious about giving advice. So we just said, you might like to consider doing this. And we had these booklets made which were then translated into 11 languages and used throughout the world. And everywhere we go, we find people using these things. We, we did it for free to start off with, but then at the end, we had to make a small, well, ask for a donation uh, for it. Um, and that's we haven't got any anymore. We've moved away from doing the recommending what to do, because there are so many good nutritionists around nowadays in when we first started off, many of the nutritionists I wouldn't send my dog to, but now they seem to know a lot more, more than I do about actual clinical work. Um, so I'm hoping that's where we are. And um, but that is that is what we would do.
0: And you said uh, this time you you were running the autism research unit at the University of Sunderland. Then you said you got um, kicked oh. out. Was that to do with you finding um, that some children had a link with the MMR vaccine?
1: Um, you know it could be. It wasn't when all the time that I was, it was just a school of pharmacy that I was in, I was being encouraged by our boss to do it. And and I'd go to him one day and I would say, um, he said, what have you done now? And I said, "Well, we we found such and such," and this, this and he would say, um, "Actually, this was the Gulf War syndrome in this particular case, which is very similar." And he would he would say, "Is the science all right, Paul?" And I said, "Yes, it is, Jeff." And he'd say, "Get on with it, then. Just get it. We're back you." But the University of Sunderland was beginning to open a school of medicine. And um, we realised what was going to happen. It uh, no, I'll say no more. But it oh. suddenly became very difficult for us to work there. The the uh, we felt we weren't wanted. We um, uh, the fees for renting the laboratories went up dramatically, and they owned wanted to own all the machinery that we'd bought and that sort of thing. So we. Got out. We saw it come in and I rented a laboratory, um, just a, a small one somewhere, and we um, took that those things that we could that were ours definitely, and had to start again. It cost us a couple of years doing it, but I can understand why a school of pharmacy doing work that indicated vaccines were not helpful would not a- attract the uh, um, the the pleasant eye of that, that, you know, pharmaceutical companies who were also people with whom they had to liaise well um,
0: I, I was doing i was doing projects you know decades ago in special educational needs schools and of course meeting a lot of parents uh, with children diagnosed with autism and i would ask the parents what what you know what have you noticed and i met you know, well over a dozen at that time who categorically said uh, that their child developed uh, the symptoms of autism, some becoming nonverbal, uh, literally within days of having the MMR, the measles. Well, yeah. a vaccine. And it's very hard to, you know, to deny that when you I mean, I've probably met, you know, closer yeah. to 100 parents who would who would swear by
1: that. So what, what were you finding? Well, we attended meetings of the parents who said that it was, but I I personally didn't believe it, that the vaccine was involved. And um, uh, it could have been, but I I didn't think it was. And then one day, one of my colleagues said to me, have you noticed that all the people who haven't got this compound in it, who are autistic, they have a funny profile compared to that?" And I said, no, I haven't noticed. So I went through them all and she was telling the truth. She spotted something that I hadn't spotted, but the ones who got different sort of um, graphs coming from them, these were the ones, and there were a certain number from the UK, but we had a lot more of them from America. And we hadn't, we we never did ask the question to start off with. Did vaccines do it? Because we thought we shot feeding her and I had a suggestion to them which they wouldn't have thought of. So anyway, I phoned up about ten of these mothers in um, the United States, and and said, "Did the uh, vac- Did vaccine? Did did anything cause this?" And they said, yeah, it was the vaccines." But um, I think I think that was a much bigger sc- score of. MMR type jobs in there because you have to remember the Americans were getting huge numbers of vaccines at the time within an hour of birth they were given a vaccine against hepatitis B which they're not going to get anyway Um, but it's got mercury in it so there's a bad start other things were bad uh, together with the MMR they also gave chicken pox vaccine but in the other buttock um, yeah. That's that's um, just just this what they did, and I think that that became fairly normal in the states. I think a lot of them. This is just me thinking aloud. Um, wow, I, I couldn't believe that so many of the parents said, "Yeah, the vaccines did it." Whereas in ours, it was consistently between six and seven percent of the parents who alleged that the, that the vaccine did it. The other ninety. 3 to 4% didn't suggest it was there. Mm-hmm. I think they were a bit different. I tried to write papers on it, but uh, no, they never published. Um, it wouldn't be published. They, they say It was the worst paper we ever seen in their lives, that sort of thing. The most biased paper. We tried to make it not biased at all, and we had support from psychiatrists who said, yeah, change that, change that, change that. But it was never put out there. Um, and that's one of the sort of reasons why we decided to have a conference every year. Nobody invited me to speak. Nobody read a, let us publish the stuff. So I had to organize a conference in Durham University, which ran for years. Um, and um, I invited myself to be a speaker, which which meant I had to write a piece. So we have written up some of this stuff, but it, it, we're very, very cautious. We've seen what happened to Andrew Wakefield, um, who I believe was telling the truth, um, but destroy the man, even if you can't destroy the research was their attitude. I still, and but now I'd be interested in what you find. I am not hearing from parents that they're getting children with autism following the MMR. I haven't got my ears so close to the ground as I used to have, but I wonder if that phenomenon has ceased
0: now. Well, no, it is interesting because, of course, the mercury has gone, uh, you know, which has to be good news.
1: Yeah, Uh, and also there's something else that's gone, which parents noticed. They didn't like the use of paracetamol. mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of them said that was what was doing it. And that's what Americans sort of blamed a little bit. But
0: would you mean he'll... paracetamol in the vaccine?
1: No, they not in the vaccine. But if most of these kids in America, they would um they they would go to have their wellness checkup and the doctor or they weren't weren't well, say so go and see the doctor, and then the doctor would say, Hey, come might as well have your vaccines while you're here. And they give them the four vaccines and then gave him paracetamol, and that's what the doctors used to say in England. Take paracetamol. If there's any problem at all, take paracetamol. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you know how paracetamol works. I don't fully, but I understand it works through the immune system to some extent. So I I ask myself um, if it's a good idea to give somebody three different diseases in one go and then hit them with something that's going to depress their immune system. Mm-hmm. Um I'll say no more. I'll so we no. sort
0: of, we're talking about kind of total load uh, effect. and of course in in the world of nutrition, we often don't talk about the dark side of nutrition, which is anti-nutrients. You've mentioned uh, organophosphates uh, yeah. have you come across other I mean, our world has become a lot more toxic. We are exposed to a lot more toxic chemicals. Yeah. Have you done any research in that area? Do you think that could be a contributor?
1: I do think it's the biggest contributor at the moment. Um the, the organophosphate, they're everywhere. And I just hate it when I go along and I see brown leaf, you know, plants which have been put with that um other stuff or what they call it now. Glyphosate.
0: Uh, sorry? Is it glyphosate? Yes,
1: yeah, glyphosate. Yeah. That's the organophosphate, you see.
0: Yeah.
1: They do exactly the same thing. That one has, has other disease as well, and I hate it when you go when you go along and you see these dead plants in the, all over the place, and the council um, uses them. Um, I'd like to think I could persuade them not to, but it's what everybody else does, and I'm very very worried about those. We have a I have a colleague at uh, the university. Well, he, he's left now. Um, Uh, Malcolm Hooper, Professor Malcolm Hooper and he once I'd arranged to meet some people, Gulf Warlets to Mm -hmm. talk to them about what that had and what happened and so on and then I couldn't do it because I had a class I'd forgotten about it so Malcolm came and took them and after that Malcolm is a very pushy Yorkshire character and he has a tremendous reputation and he was that he is their safety man. He is the only man they trust from the, the War Department or whatever it was called then, Ministry of Defence, um, looking at them. I mean, he, since he's retired, he still does 80-odd. And I remember once he was talking about the depleted uranium, which we use, we put in shells, and um because uh, they're heavier than lead and they were go through a tank wall easily and we were using these and then but they're called depleted uranium it doesn't mean it hasn't got any radioactivity in it and it's in there and it goes in there and the troops there got everything it was like a fabulous experiment being tried on all these bad things organophosphate pesticides we we gave our troops organophosphate pesticides to prepare them no, it wasn't. We gave them something different, sorry. But for sand flies, we put organophosphates over them. Um, and we bought them, allegedly, we bought them in Saudi Arabia and didn't speak Arabic. And and so our troops got 12 times the dose. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But they got a lot of organophosphates over them. And so things very similar happened to them. Mm. Um, and uh, Malcolm was their sort of spokesperson and he was on the late night program with um, I can't remember his name either. The um, the very rough um, interviewer there, and somebody from the Department of Health said, "But okay." So they go there, and uh, they go they go through white hot through the, the shell of the tank, and um, then what happens to the in, in, in the the man for minutes he said well it turns into gas so the chap said oh that's safe then it's just gone then and malcolm said it's perfectly safe as long as you don't breathe (laughs) yes so
0: so really we've got to you know we've got to go organic and change the way we're you know growing foods and so on yes talking of foods i mean what about sugar you know we know sugar is having a massive effect on Adolescents, uh, we know you yeah
1: know, uh, i honestly have, don't know enough about that compared mm-hmm. to the other things you know it, it wasn't in the in the book as it were mm. but i am very conscious of the fact that being a, a wartime baby we all got our orange juice and we got our cod liver oil and we got other things which were good for us and, and those people who made us have those well, i think they were brilliant think about it all that long time ago so um, uh, I I do believe that um w- yeah well you're into vitamins and minerals more than I am but I do think that there is a place for these because the the books will say oh you need to have this amount in there but that's enough uh, uh vitamin D to stop you getting rickets it's mm-hmm. not enough to stop you to Um, the other problems that come up with it. Vitamin D is a biggie, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and of
0: course, that that cod liver oil, it didn't just have vitamin D, it had omega-3. And uh, now we know from the brilliant work of Professor Michael Crawford that those critical parts of the brain membrane are made out of omega-3 DHA. So, I mean, I was reading that I think 5% of children now in the UK achieve... The recommended, you know, which is probably much too low anyway, um, intake of essential fats. Probably, uh, you know, barely one in five pregnant women do as well. So, yeah. what do you think about that sort of?
1: Well, term- I, do, I do. I went to um, Saudi Arabia, did some talks there, and uh, uh, and I'm not so sure whether it was because of what I said and, and all that that went down there. But most of the, the ladies, of course, are dressed in black. The sun, there's plenty of sunlight there, but it doesn't hit them. Mm-hmm. They're protected from it. So they won't be making the um, uh, vitamin D that they would normally be making. They mm-hmm. probably make less than we do in Sunderland. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they're nearly all taking vitamin D, I'm pleased to say. Uh, and other people have told me that. And I don't, I'd like to think it's because of what I said, but I doubt it. So <laughs> I, I mean,
0: if vitamin D is a factor in autism, uh, as it is in so many diseases, we'd sort yes. of see an equatorial skewing. In other words, less autism closer to the equator, more autism the further north and south
1: you go. Is that the case? I don't know. I don't know. I I have sort of tried to find those things out but i'm not sure the data i get is usable in any way but i i'm sure that the the, the, the there's a friend of mine ralph um something like that and he, and he um helps people by using because vitamin d is not water soluble so it's difficult to get it spread spread around the body where it needs to be as so he markets uh, the vitamin d carrier mm-hmm. enzyme which picks stuff up and takes it where it needs to go i not saying it's specifically designed for autism, but um, other it, 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 I know people are using it anyway.
0: Now, of course, in cod liver you've also got vitamin A, and there was some very interesting research that vitamin A, um, which is retinol, retina, and it's yep. very much involved in the in how the rods work in the eyes that's the rods for black and white, cones for color um and you know we know a number of children with autism have sort of visual problems and they don't look you in the eye they have distorted visual fields apparently um what's your take on that
1: yep i know there was a a pediatrician in uh, virginia who was pushing them but Mm. at the same time i do not know whether this is true or not people saying that vitamin a and vitamin d do opposites or use the same carrier or something like that? Mm-hmm. Then maybe not. So, but I don't know enough about that. I'm afraid I'm going to find out. Um, the vit- vitamin D, I think, is a biggie, mm-hmm. uh, not only in COVID uh, but in autism and many other things as well. I, I do think it's important. But at the beginning of COVID, when it came out, came out, I thought, right, for the people in Esper, we will give. Um, uh, vitamin d vitamin c and uh, zinc in a sort of cheapo thing and it was done to cost us seven and a half p per day mm-hmm. but we dare do it if we'd done it without department of health approval um we'd have been closed down just like that so I, it is
0: extraordinary isn't it i mean we've got the 22 clinical trials now that the NICE, National Institute of Clinical Excellence have finally admitted are clinically relevant, um, but they won't review them. It's as simple as that. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear that we're we're actually starting a trial in, um, in uh, up near Aberdeen, with the University of Aberdeen and NHS Grampian to answer a very obvious and simple question that no one has ever answered. And that is how much vitamin C does somebody in a care home actually need, you know, just basic levels. So we're starting that um, sort of later this year. So yeah. all this nutrition, all this talk about you know vitamins, omega three, gluten, casein—never mind the vaccines. I mean, how much of this is considered uh, by mainstream pediatric psychiatrists, psychologists, etc.?
1: Has there been? I, any think, op- yeah. this? I think they use it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had a number of doctors come and talk to us, but we wouldn't give us their names they wanted information to uh, uh, do it with their children uh, and but it's becoming better but every everything they put they say this needs more work on it this needs more work on it mm-hmm. everything which uh, you know, the, the, the evidence is is not complete but um and it isn't but people you don't get a grant to it it's difficult to get ethical approval to try these things on people who cannot give approval themselves um it's gradually coming its way, and I was pleased to see that uh, Boris Jay, whatever you might think of him, he was the one who who, who made uh, care hounds use exactly what we were using, vitamin D, vitamin C, and zinc in the product. Certain parts of America, you'd be struck off the register for doing that, mm-hmm. giving those same things. They they have got themselves into a, a lot of trouble. Um uh, but they cannot I don't know whether you heard the joke about what's the difference between God and a doctor, And the answer is that God doesn't think He's a doctor. And he, <laughs> it's, it's difficult um, the old time like the younger ones are better, and mm-hmm. the very old ones are better, but the middle ones are the difficult ones who don't want to deviate from they've learned it's best to stick with what the regulations say and recommend. And I can understand that, but uh, we've spoken
0: is... a lot about nutrition and you know vaccines and chemicals and other such factors. But what do we need to know about social and psychological issues for those with autism? How can we best support them?
1: I don't think factor, we... for example. Yeah, I don't think we got it. We're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we haven't got medications that this is the answer to it. People have looked for it. And uh, the books are full of things that try out and didn't do what they thought they were gonna do. There's one drug which which I was particularly interested in was um oh I mean neuro not neurotoxin, not it was it was the antidote to morphine, um naltrexone, that's it. Okay. Naltrexone. And initially it's an obvious thing to try when people were looking up opioid excess theories. It was an obvious thing to try, but they thought it was carcinogenic at the time. Then they discovered it isn't carcinogenic, and they used the anti-opioid, thing, but they used it in the same sort of dose that they would do to somebody who was high on morphine. They use a big dose, and the half-life of neuro, um, this drug—I um, forgot its name again already—is um, um, step- seventy-two hours. Mm-hmm. So if you were taking two doses of this a day, you were taking, you're taking 100 milligrams a day and with a half-life of three days. So it took 15 days to equilibrate and you are on a huge dose of the stuff by then. Now, a friend of ours, a Swiss man, just gave 8 milligrams to his son and he was brilliant mm-hmm. but for a little while. Then it wore off. And... Then, recently, I'll, I'll tell you this one, with Jamie, my son. I don't like doing this, but I'll tell you, as, as, as I'm old anyway, and if I get hanged, it doesn't matter, that uh, uh, it was his day for, for um, to be interviewed by the staff at school. And we always have this view that nobody should talk about somebody unless they're there. So Jamie came into this thing, and the night before, our friendly psychologist gave him a bit of naltrexone, a, a smallish dose, 8 milligrams, and Jamie came in, and he stared at his hands as if he'd never seen them before. He went round the room looking at everybody, in the eyes and, and looking at their faces. He knew them all but he'd never, as if he'd never seen them and staring at them. And then he sat down and was as good as gold all the way through, listening to what people were saying about him and so on. And then as we drove home, Jamie suddenly leaned forward in the car and said, Mummy. And he'd never said Mummy in his life. He was 22 at this stage and he leaned forward and said Mummy and sat back looking smug and... My wife and I both looked at each other and I thought, no, and we imagined that. And then he did it again. Mummy, he said, and went right back. But so so the consultant, this is treatment, he could do it. And he said, we'll, we'll, we'll try it a bit longer. But it very soon lost its effect. Mm. Whether it's because of the long time it stayed in the body, quite why well, I don't know. But other people have found the same thing. Just it, it, if you've got violent, aggressive kids, it works for a short time, and then stops working. And you increase the dose or whatever, but it doesn't do it. Um, there's something in there, as if the body has some mechanism. Oh, I don't like naltrexone, and wants homeostatic place to be in the same place as it was before. I don't know, but that's another mystery we need to try and look at. It's the only thing I can see, which would have direct effect on the symptoms that we see um, now
0: as we sort of move towards the end in an enlightened world you're a health minister you can do whatever you like. what should we be doing to help prevent this escalation of autism and also to help those with it?
1: I think first we get them all the ones we can do um the younger children looked at. We've got to make a fuss about these organophosphate pesticides, but they have a, a strong, several times um, glyphosate has been banned, but they're still using it. Europe decided we we're going to stop using that, but then then somebody comes along and overrules them. And the same in America. they over- overruled by um, President Trump's version of the, environmental protection act mm-hmm. uh, they're you're doing these things which they've they've passed legislation will not do um but i think we've just got to you've got to make a jolly good television program about this and and with the evidence um perhaps even forgetting the vaccine bit um because there's there's all the gulf war vets there's all the farmers who've been poisoned by um, uh, by uh, the weed, the organophosphates, farmers mm. get more. Um, what's the disease? Where well, you keep shaking? Um, Parkinson's. Yes, more Parkinson's. They get more Parkinson's. Uh, that and it's it involved with the same gene to break down um, uh, our organophosphate pesticides. There's things like that. So many things. Which come together and me just going around saying something in the church hall isn't going to help. Um, It's been difficult to get this sort of thing published, but uh, maybe you've got uh, somebody who's very brave and very daring and who who could do something about it.
0: So we need to, I mean, we need to look at organophosphates, encourage organic food, uh, always have the gluten casein. Yep, yep, diet on the map, get the nutrition good. We've mentioned omega 3s, vitamin A, vitamin D, B vitamins, sulfation,
1: uh, and all that stuff. and yeah, we um, would try one at a time because yeah. we don't, it, it, otherwise, they might be taking things which aren't any use to them personally. There's so many different things in, in autism, and um we the children the subjects they've all got different genes they've all had different vaccines they've all had different diseases they've got uh, uh different experiences what they've had and what they haven't had they eat different foods and so on um what we've we've got to find from our end is personalized in um medication mm-hmm. for each person because there's, there's no point in putting everybody on a gluten-casein-free diet when it's going to make no difference to half of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think get together and um, uh, look at these things. See if, uh, I mean, as, as you said, uh, Professor Crawford has done a lot of great work um, and uh, um, the, the Italian fellow, I forgot his name. Let's,
0: no? Yeah, no, I mean, just as you sort of mention it, Um, you've been awarded an OBE for your um, fantastic contribution to this field but the the charity and and thank you immensely and also being honest and out there and the charity Food for the Brain Foundation have a masterclass called New Frontiers in Autism starting with another OBE winner uh, Dr Rona Tutt who was actually the first head of the National Association of Head Teachers to come from Special Educational Needs School. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's talking, and then she's followed by Professor Michael Crawford talking about the role of maternal uh, nutrition on brain development. Then we have Dr. Alessio Fasano. Um, He's the division chief of pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition um, over at uh, Harvard and the Massachusetts uh, General um, Children's Mm -hmm. Hospital. And then we have, uh, uh, I'm going to actually talk on sulfation and methylation and the role of of b vitamins and so yeah. on and we have ann pemberton uh, who's a functional medicine and nutrigenomics practitioner who also looks at the whole um you know the whole sort of you know family background and stress factors and yeah post-traumatic you know i mean traumas basically um that may have a role to play as well so that's what we've got coming up um and You know, I wish we could have you, but we're very, very grateful uh, to have you share your wisdom on this podcast. And really, I know thousands of people would want to thank you very much for sticking your neck out and uh, saying it the way it is. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I I just want to say a couple of things more. Um, The OBE, uh, my mother was a bit of a socialist. And um, when I was awarded, I thought, I didn't take this, you'll kill me. But uh, in the end, she was very proud of me for it. But I accepted it because the, the, the um, MMR stuff was coming out, and I was at risk. And I think if I got OBE, that gives me a bit of safety. So yeah. I did that and accepted it. And I'm very proud of it now. And the other thing is there's one thing we are doing um, in the World Autism Organization. It's, it's a sort of spin-off from that. We hold events in parts of the world where there's nothing, no hope. Mm. And uh, uh, next week, about a dozen of us are assembling in um, Monte Monte. Mr. Black, yeah, uh, not black. Monte Negro. Yeah, that's it. we yeah. going. we going. We're going there to have a conference there. Um, we're all paying for ourselves to go. And this is the sixth or seventh we've done in that area in the Balkans. Mm. And what we do is we invite a local university to sort of work with us, sponsor us. No, but we don't get much sponsorship, but parents have got nothing. So we go and we talk about different aspects of it. I'm actually going to talk about what it was like when I had an autistic son and how we started to school and things like that. But in the last Five that we've done. Each of the universities has immediately started a department for autism. And they've assisted in opening a school for autistic children there. Um, And we've been thrilled at the the things that they're they're doing and learning about. Um, And it's helpful. I just wanted you to know about that as well.
0: Thank you so much. Um, spreading the word throughout the world, doing what we can. That's what it's all about. It um, is. It is. Paul Shaddock, thank you very much for coming on my podcast.
1: My pleasure. My, my honour too.